Hey everybody, it's Connor. Thank you so much for joining us for this brand new episode of Drama with Connor and Dylan McDowell. Jack, I did the full title there. Anyway, I'm so glad that you're listening to this episode with Melissa Erico. She is so insightful and kind and is brimming with stories. We almost could have done like three episodes with her, but this is the one you get and I know you're going to love it. So definitely go post about it on social media, give us five stars, like us on Spotify, you know, subscribe everywhere to all your friends. And I'm so glad you're taking a break from binging the traders, from watching the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City reunion part three, warming up from this cold, cold winter, from being upset about the Oscar nomination snubs, all of that to join us for drama. It, it truly means the world to Dylan and I. This is our, this is our heart and soul. So please enjoy this episode. Post about us everywhere. And if you really love us, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the drama podcast. $5 a month, you support the pod, you get added to our close friends. Sounds like a good deal to me. All right, on to the show. Press play. Curtain of an hour in. It's time to take spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, Ooh drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got nom? They option no. Oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. 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 <laughs> Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life. I am Connor McDowell. And I am Dylan McDowell. You know, Connor, I'm feeling very nostalgic today, I have to admit. In having this guest on, I will never forget the first time I heard her sing in real life. It was my very first day as an intern at 54 Below, August 2016. Whoa. I actually remember this memory. I feel like I share this memory with you, even though I wasn't there. It's one of those twin things. It's one of those twin things, for sure. (laughs) And there was a press event, which I didn't know anything about anything. And it was Norbert Leo Butts, Carmen Cusack, Tony Danza, and today's guest. And she sang Always Better from Bridges of Madison County. Oh, in all time. Yeah. I'd never heard it sung by anyone other than Kelly O'Hara. And the way that she interpreted this song, I have chills literally thinking about it right now, actually. Oh. And I will never forget it. And then, of course, got to see her concert like a month and a half or so later. And throughout my time at 54 Below, she, her presence, her art, because I do believe what she brought to the what brings to the cabaret form is art, has always yeah. been there. And she has a new album coming out. So, like, the stars are all aligning on getting to honestly fangirl a little bit, I have to say, over, over her. But, <laughs> and of course, she's a dear friend of our uh, our pal, Robbie Roselle, who designed all the artwork for yeah. our, our podcast over the years. But I'm excited about today. I know we've already been having a really fun chat. And I wish we were recording bits of it, but we're going to get into some great stuff. Dylan, why don't you read the introduction and then we can get it going. Our guest today is Simply Sublime. She is a Tony nominee for Amour and received Drama Desk Award nominations for her work in Passion, Candida, High Society, The Importance of Being Earnest, and My Fair Lady. Her numerous Broadway and off-Broadway credits also include Anna Karenina, Dracula the Musical, White Christmas, Finian's Rainbow, Major Barbara, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, One Touch of Venus, and Do I Hear a Waltz? Among many more. A foremost interpreter of Stephen Sondheim's catalog, she worked personally with him on the Kennedy Center production of Sunday in the Park with George as Dot and Marie. She toured the nation in Les Miserables as Cassette, starred at the Hollywood Bowl in Camelot, The Sound of Music, and reprised her role of Eliza Doolittle opposite John Lithgow in My Fair Lady. 
Our fabulous guest has appeared on television in Billions, The Nick, The Good Wife, and many more, as well as films on The Rocks, The Magnificent Meyersons, and more. Her album entitled Sondheim Sublime was praised by the Wall Street Journal as the best all Sondheim album ever recorded. Our guest also had a longstanding creative partnership with Michelle Legrand, evidenced by her album Le Grand Affair and multiple collaborations. She's also released many albums, including Out of the Dark, the film noir project, What About Today, live at 54 Below, and more. She'll be performing a residency at Birdland Theater this February 14th through the 18th, meanwhile releasing her Sondheim in the City album on February 16th. We are honored to have this mother, icon, regular New York Times columnist, and star who has performed in venues from Carnegie Hall to London. Please welcome to drama, Melissa Erica. Oh my gosh, I should come here more often. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you drama. chose all the good stuff. Oh, oh yes. thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Melissa, are you well? I am well. I am well. Yeah. Kind and sweet way to begin. I have three teenagers. You're catching me at a time where my husband is in Australia. Annually, he goes to Australia for the month of, almost the whole month of January, uh, where the Australian Open is played. And when we were young, he used to play in the Australian Open. In fact, I remember when I was super young, I always dressed like Eliza Doolittle way after I played Eliza Doolittle. And I went and saw him play when we were young. He played an unknown tennis player called Carlos Moya at the Australian Open and he was getting killed and I had this big hat on I looked exactly like Eliza in a flowered dress and I brought my mother and he somehow he was completely losing at one point he won one point and I was such a new bride to a tennis star a tennis man I'm now married 25 years I started cheering because he won a point <laughs> that's <laughs> he, so cute and in front of like 25 or 40,000 people he turned he knew just where I was sitting and he went shh <laughs> He shushed me at the Australian Open on center court. Oh my, you know? And your hat. I mean, it's so glamorous. So I'm good. My husband's at the Australian Open. I've acclimated to my life as a tennis mom, tennis wife. Not there watching him play. He's he's commentating. So I'm holding up the fort going from snow day to snow day with all the charm of three incredibly exciting teenage daughters. One of them is auditioning for ballet companies. So she's I've been auditioning for everything for the summer, getting accepted. And I think we're getting a letter or two in reverse. So I think she's going to have, you know, choices like all actors and all performers. So I'm looking after a ballerina, another dancer who's always doing something crazy in her room and my tennis playing daughter. So I'm good. The apples have not fallen far from, <laughs> yeah. from the trees here. <laughs> I'm good. I take care of my people and I really appreciate those, these stretches of time where we're just four, four women oh. together. It's like, it feels like the book Little Women, <laughs> but but in a modern way. I'm sort of Marmy and my three beautiful daughters, and we, we work together. We clean the house together. We look after each other emotionally. It's almost like they read to each other, you know, in a colonial way. <laughs> you know, with the, with the, and light candles. I even have an oil lamp, which they think is ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. Wait, I want you to play Marmy in the Little Women musical. So do I, now that I just said it. That would be great. Know. Days of Plenty. Yeah, oh. it would be so nice to do. I really am Marmy. So I wrote a really cool essay during the pandemic about little women because my husband had COVID right when it started. And he was, my father advised me to put my husband in the basement. So it wasn't the civil war, you know, but her husband was in the civil war. I had the children and I had this sense that there was like a war on and mm -hmm. I was with my kids 
And I've written an essay, a really long one in the, on the internet. You can check it out on this in the magazine, a wellness magazine. Speaking of how are you doing? A wellness mm-hmm. magazine that I work for a lot called The Purist. Yes. I saw that you, you contributed to them a lot and work with them. Yeah, I do a lot, a lot of stuff with them. I wrote about meditation and I wrote about someone got me into TM, someone in the business, mm-hmm. Noah Himmelstein, I think, the, the director. Okay. He advised me to try TM at one point. So I kept my anniversary kind of, I would do like an anniversary, like it's been one year with TM, like it's a boyfriend on my Twitter <laughs> yeah. or something. Me and my guy, TM. And then like a two years and the three years. So writing about your relationship to, to relaxation mm. and peace. You know. That's beautiful. I feel like you try a lot of things. You do a lot of things. You're a Renaissance woman. You mentioned something so funny before we started recording <laughs> was that you, when you were a young woman, maybe a little girl, even you were obsessed with, with candlelight. And, I was. And that is so, that's very little women too, I have to say. I so little women. Yeah. I don't remember what we were talking about. Oh no, we were talking about how we identify with our, with our characters. And I was oh, saying yes. that, that I was often in, in the uh, Victorian roles and so many petticoats and corsets have, have <laughs> come upon this now, um, you know, this body that's birthed all these kids and so on. But I've had that stomach pulled in you know, many times. <laughs> I was always a, a sort of Victorian by nature. I, I had, I was obsessed with studying. I did, I always was a, a really bookish. And my parents would come in and I have just 17 candles going, you know, <laughs> dripping all over my desk. And my mother was just like, Oh, what is going on here? You're going to ruin your eyes. You're going to ruin your eyes. Oh. I just wanted to study by candlelight. And so it is very Cosette or yeah. Anna Karenina of me or Eliza or any other yeah. character who's you know, pre-electric. Three have you ever done a concert by candlelight? You know, that's all the rage these oh, days. Have you ever heard it of these? Is? Oh, they do these like so-and-so by candlelight and it'll be like oh we saw our friend joel did one that was like queen all queen music and what? yeah i could oh, see I have to do that by candlelight in, in london it's so big. yeah mm-hmm. candlelight cabaret yeah what i know although maybe they wouldn't be able to be real fire. candles i wouldn't i don't know yeah but there'd be a fire thing yeah. and to really be lit well you need to have you know People mm-hmm. could fall asleep because they can't see you that well. They'll just hear you and be like, oh, you're mm-hmm. so smart. Mm, that's nice. No, it's interesting because you have kept this bookish nature. I mean, I think you you immerse yourself into everything that you do. And we've gotten to see tastes of that with, you know, your contributions to the New York Times and different things that you've been able to comment on. I remember when you did Finian's Rainbow for like the second or third time, you wrote an incredible piece about aging in the arts and yeah about aging because the character of course is you know just a perfect ingenue but everybody else is dealing with their surface you know there's a lot of issues of race black white and then the leprechaun is losing his power so he's losing his green Mm -hmm. (laughs) so everybody's has issues with their surface right and i'm just supposed to be perfect and then i got asked to do the character again and the new york times was saying we really think you should write you know for us and stuff and i was like this they said, what's going on in your life? I said, nothing. I just got asked to do Sharon and Finian's Rainbow again. And I've done it since forever. And I'm so old. <laughs> like, I'm just too old to play the part. And they thought that was interesting. They said, would you be willing to unpack how that feels? You know, I really do think a performer's life from the inside is so profound. And I don't just think like, I'm interesting. I think you're all interesting. <laughs> I think every reason that we all come is so profound. I feel we all share a common thread as well. And I don't really, I haven't been able to put my finger on what it is. Moss Hart says we were all the unhappy children, you know, mm. but that's in his book. That's what, that's his interpretation. I'm not sure I believe that because I think there's a joyful side too, to 
why would come and and a storytelling a person who's quick to want to leave themselves and go to somewhere else you know mm-hmm. and and yes. will transcend themselves and I, I think that's not just unhappy i think that's actually quite flexible and, f- and fabulous yeah, so i agree with you <laughs> yeah i think we're flexible and fabulous <laughs> but so i'm still working on what it is that we have in common but but writing about what goes on in a performer's mind i thought i took to that to that challenge right away so at that time i i thought about sharon in the context of a play that's about surfaces and race really it was it was an effort to laugh racism out of existence as Eve Harburg said in 1946 it was the mm-hmm. first musical where black and white actors shared not only the stage but dressing rooms and everything so it was a really a big breakthrough of a show so I thought about what the show is and then if I'm too old then I should sort of give myself a little bit of a break as well <laughs> so my cheeks aren't as pink and rosy as they used to be I can still tell the story and she doesn't even exist. Sharon's not even a, Sharon is like her own personal brigadoon. She doesn't even exist. They say, where is Glockamora? And she says, it's that faraway place in everyone's heart, a little beyond one's reach, but never beyond one's hope. Mm. So it's Glockamora is a, is an idea. And she says, I'm from this place. So if she's from a place that's an idea, then what is she, right? Anyway, so I, you know, I, I could, I could be any age to, to be an idea. Or the child of an idea or the resident of a place, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I loved, uh, you know, thinking about my life as an ingenue. I think I have a book in me and I've oh, yeah. uh, told many uh, people about this, but I believe my memoir could be called Terminal Ingenue. Ooh, I love that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sort of forever an ingenue, but I also have that. I think I will always have a kind of ingenue soul, you know. I don't judge the ingenue. A lot of people think of an ingenue as a something you want to get over doing or it's been a trap. Mm-hmm. I never felt she was a trap, you know. It's boring sometimes, but I never made her boring. I always came up with some story. But yeah, you always fall in love with the guy the second you look at him. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Cosette, she bumps into him in the in the market with her little basket and boom, they're in love. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I came through the barricades, they open, I come through, boom, I'm in love. Yeah. Done. In my life, you know. Oh yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so I do have a bookish kind of nature. I was bookish even at 18 when I got Lame is, for example. First thing I did is read the book. Oh, wow. I actually just sat down and read the book, like backstage. It was a long one. Yeah, it took like a part <laughs> of the run to do it. Yeah. But I was always reading. I would skip around to find the exact literature that matched the scene. Oh. So I could read it again and again before I went on. And then I would do things that I thought she would do, you know, that, like, like have a bird. I had a bird and I used to sneak the bird into the theater. And I had a bird cage. Wait, like a real bird? A real black hooded finch. I actually brought a, well, here's the dumb thing was that I thought (laughs) I got so relaxed, you know, being on the road so long. I was only 18. So I was not circumspect. At one point I took the bird out of the cage. And so I go down the stairs and I didn't know that they clip the bird's wings, but they grow back. Oh, I didn't know that either. I didn't know that birds don't stay <laughs> you know, <Right>. like <laughs> broken they they grow back so i'm standing there in like chicago at the auditorium theater i'm standing in the hallway and i'm just it's it's just so pretty you know with the like dress and this little bird and just talking to people and the bird flew out of my hand and it went into the onto the stage and it got shocked by the stage lights and the bird got scared and i was looking at this and it was the middle of the war so like i couldn't just run after it because i'm not allowed to be there right because i'm a woman mm-hmm. so i'm not supposed to be in this insurrection in the 1830s 
So I was going to run out there, but I couldn't. And so I started screaming. I was like, the bird, the bird. And I like watched it freaking out and went close to a light. And it kind of freaked itself out. And it sort of maybe it got dizzy from the heat. or And it went down to the ground. And it then went under the barricade. And then I was sure I was going to get run over when the war was over, right? So I'm telling all the stagehands and they're all, they're dressed like soldiers and stuff. So, and so they can climb on the thing. So they're going under there and they're reaching their hands to find the bird. (laughs) And they gave me the bird. It had dust. It was like dusty. It was like coughing a little. So that was a day for Cosette. Yeah, it's a wild story. It's a crazy story, right? I was such a teenager and I was such a fantasist, you know, so I was like, had these, I was creating her world, you know, it was a Greenfinch world for her, you know? Mm. Yeah. Oh Oh my goodness. Well, we're talking about sort of like being young and immersing yourself in the arts and whatnot. We'd like to ask our guests about their Ring of Keys moment. Yeah, the Ring of Keys. I heard about this is your famous thing. This is our little segment. We borrow it from Fun Home, of course, but, you know, we'd like to think about you were watching something, you were listening to something, maybe you were reading something and it, boom, the light switch came on and you were like, oh, this is it, this is it. You have it? Oh, for sure. For any art history people out there, there's these famous paintings, you know, the conversion of St. Paul and he's in a barn and he sees God and he falls down and there's many, many paintings in history of him on the ground looking up and there's a light shining down on him. And you can sometimes see a piece of a horse or something so you know what happened in the barn. It runs throughout art history and I sometimes think that my experience around Broadway was so similar. It's almost religious. I don't have a religious aspect to me, but I Mm. felt that I fell back. A light struck me when I was watching On Your Toes on Broadway. And I don't know what happened. It happened though, as suddenly as it happened to Paul in the barn. I was watching jazzy people sing Rogers and Hart, singing and dancing. Christine Andreas was singing. Lara Teeter was dancing. Natalia Makarova, who's an old, was old lady at that point, but she was a great ballerina with these wicked, sexy legs. And Lara Teeter had her bent over in the Slaughter on 10th Avenue ballet, which is jazzy and dirty and everything. And he had her bent over and her fingernails are on the ground behind her. And he's just dragging her and she's kicking her leg perfect to the ceiling every step. And he's just walking her and she's going, da, 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 ba, ba, da, da. The whole thing from her to the sweetness of Christine Andreas's jazzy, husky, delicate, you know, swing, swinging kind of voice. And I was overwhelmed and I was weeping and weeping and weeping. And my mother was just, what is Melissa? What is wrong with you? What's happening? Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, who are these people? <laughs> How did they get up there? Like, who I just, who are these people, right? These people, I actually said these people. And I feel that way about every person. I could cry right now. Like every single person that is loves this is a person like that to me. Mm. Like I don't, I will never, t- I will never not admire musical theater people. Like to the, to, to my most core self. It just lit up, you know? So my, I was crying and crying and crying. I wasn't even looking actually at the stage after a while. I just knew something. I, how did they get up there? So then I had to figure that out. What motivated your mom to bring you to this? Like, was she quite the... It was my birthday. Oh. Just a Broadway yeah, show. Okay. We're Long Island people, Italian family. I mean, I'm in a, we come from an Italian family. My parents struggled, did not come from wealth. And my father was uh, served in Vietnam. Mm. And when he was in Vietnam, my brother was newborn. And so they were separated. And they had a song that they made a commitment to. Then they listened to it all the time. And it was the song of Vietnam for them. And it was written by Michelle Legrand. It was called, I Will Wait For You. 
It was very popular in the 60s. It came out in the mo- when the movie of Umbrellas of Cherbourg came out in 1964. And that was a sort of soundtrack of their life. Michelle Legrand was really formative. Then after that day at the theater, did you beg your mom, can I take singing lessons? Can I be like them? Like, what was the next step there? So they took me to musicals, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes. And my father played the piano at home. He was a doctor, but he also played the piano. I knew about New York and I knew there were actors out there, but it, they're not acting people. You know, we went on an act, acting family and uh, it was so foreign to them. So what did I start doing? I went to French Woods camp, actually. I was a gymnast and then I switched, went to French Woods and I right away, because I was such a, I had such big hair and a sort of shapely figure. And weirdly for being a bookish kind of person, I was also sort of a sexy kind of like, sort of like naturally sexy <laughs> Just at 12, I was just completely free with everything, yeah. you know? And so I played Hedy LaRue that oh, summer. Fun. How to succeed, right? Yeah. And how to succeed. And I loved it. I loved making people laugh. Maybe there's a sort of, you know how we all are, we all contain opposites, mm-hmm. you know? This idea that you're one thing, I think you're actually, we are, we are made of contradiction. Yeah. So I have this bookish sort of peaceful side. And then I have this unbelievable, silly, <laughs> want to make you laugh kind of, heart side. You know, my, there was a Zigfield family, a Zigfield Follies girl in our family. My mother was super, super sexy. So when I got the part, you know, she sent me her high heels and a mini dress and I wore these super, super high, really inappropriate because they look, they didn't even look like they should be on Hedy LaRue. They look like they should be on like a, I don't know, somebody who was to, my mother used to go to Studio 54. So oh, like a, a Studio 54 kind of super bimbo shoes. And, <laughs> and you were 12? Uh, I, I, I was 12 and I came out in a little towel in those shoes, you know, and I have pictures of me in the towel. Oh, I thought it was so much fun to be yeah. in a little towel. <laughs> so, a few straight boys at French Woods were oh, like, yeah. it was the ring of keys yeah. for them. In a different way, I'm sure. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> so I, I just kept going back and then I did the school play. I did Bye Bye Birdie. I played Kim. And I think Bye Bye Birdie was also middle school, so 6th, 7th, and 8th. And I got the lead in 6th mm-hmm. grade. So that was like, oh, my God, how did mm-hmm. you do that? And my parents say that when I started singing How Lovely to Be a Woman, every parent and everybody started looking around. Like, like are we hearing mm-hmm. this kind of thing? I don't remember that, to be honest. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a unique uh, singer. But I guess my pitch and my cl- it was just clarion clear, yeah. you know, like a clarinet. Like just, I just, my dad always said I had my voice like a clarinet right uh, from the beginning. Uh-huh. So that was cool, but the voice was natural. Something about me is that's always, everything's been a bit gypsy or natural. You know, I didn't come at this with an opera background. I didn't go off to like a musical conservatory. I kept a sort of gypsy vibe. I used to run around Manhattan to try to figure stuff out. <laughs> you know, I would take flamenco. I would go down the East Village. I would... You go to Charles Bush plays. Vampires of Sodom. What was what's it called? Uh, yeah, but vampire lesbians, lesbians yeah. of Sodom. You know, he's one of my really close friends now. I help him. I've been helping him to uh, to release his memoir. His oh, memoir. God. Yes, I. I've been doing events with him. Yeah, and he sang with me in Fifty Four Below, and we've been doing a bit of a Stephen Eady thing. Oh, cute. <laughs> so, so my my process has been a little a little chaotic, to be honest, and free spirited. It was all passion, 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 and I was you know Cosette by yeah. eighteen. Mm. You know, so I guess it could have been more of a schooled, I could have been more of a schooled actress. Mm-hmm. I did go to the Yale Drama School, but dropped oh, out. Right. For Cassette. For at that point, no, that would be for Eliza Duo. Oh. oh. Yeah. And they said, well, if you got that, then you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Will Gister <laughs> was, was the head of the Yale Drama School. Very okay. famous man. He had a voice box. So he used to speak by putting the machine against his trachea like that and talk. It was he, well, what do you want to do? 
what should we do? My feeling is that you should go. There's no need to be here if you want to be a singer. You know, he would say things. Was that a medical reason he had that? or I'm not sure. Yeah, it yeah. had to be a medical reason. Like a stoma yeah. or something like that? Yeah. He had something, yeah. yeah. But he was a brilliant teacher. But he would teach you the most, most passionate uh, things. He, I studied Chekhov with him, actually. He went to Oxford for one summer. He was teaching us the most profound, complicated, human you know, sort of the depths of, of Sonia and, you know, or, or Yelena, you know, as a sort of great Chekhov characters. And he would only have one note to speak. Right. And he would be guiding you with just this kind of thing. How does that make you feel? Well, then what? Mm. Oh, not even that. Like, I'm even, I have more variation than he did. It was always one thing, you know, it was amazing. He's like, there's a machine, but a great mind. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You see, we do so much to communicate, right? As artists, yeah, so much. If you have a handicap, you work around it. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a handicap in this business. Everybody has a weakness, and your weakness is something you should develop in a weird way. The thing that people think is your weakness is actually your strength. Somebody mm. just said that to me. They said, yeah. "Well, they said it in this way. Sometimes our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness." But you know, they, they, you yeah, know, I think Jean Cocteau right. said that too, okay. a great filmmaker in like the forties. I think he said something like, "Whatever people don't like in you, cultivate it." That's really good. That's good. You sort of had this wandering heart when you were like in your New York story, and and you have the Soundtime in the City album. It's going to be coming out very soon. Yeah, and you mentioned us. It sort of runs parallel with your own life, like the Soundtime songs. And, and your own journey in New York. I would love to talk about the album, which is so gorgeous and special. Mm-hmm. I said a weird, funny, long word to you. I yeah. think it's like a palimpsest. And I learned what the word palimpsest means. And a palimpsest is a, a written material. And the original writing has writing on top of it, but you can still see traces of what's underneath. It's the idea that two things that are written can be sort of felt in, at the same time. So mm. there's there's my album and then there's my life story. And I feel like they are something like that metaphor. Yeah. I'm really proud of it. It's a, it's an album of Sondheim music and it's a second album. The first album, yes, I have a wandering heart and it, my, I wandered inward into my heart the first time I was going through a hard time and I went to Sondheim for philosophical reasons. I went to Sondheim for love and empathy. I think it was even more unusual to see him as an embracing, warm, sublime character uh, in 2017 when I did it, I, he, people mm-hmm. think it's sarcastic and intense and smart and yeah. challenging. Oh, yeah. But now I feel that this new album is, I like to say, outward facing, facing out into the city and that city that I wanted to be a part of, the, the little girl, you know, if this is the palimpsest side of this conversation, it overlaps with the album. There is that little girl who was another hundred people just got off of the train. That's what I wanted because I needed to get to that on your toes place and mm. find my own thing. I'm just a Broadway baby, you know? Uh-huh. And so that's on there too, that song. And there's a lot of things on the album that I think are thematic for all of us who are New Yorkers and dreamers. Like Everybody Says Don't is on the album. <laughs> Everybody Says Don't is kind of the voices of all the people who say, you can't do this. You're never going to get that part. You're too fat. You're too this. You're too old. You don't write a play. You're never going to be able to. You'll never get an agent. You can't get an agent unless you get a thing and you can't get a thing unless you get an agent and whatever, all the millions of things that happen to all of us. Everybody says don't. Well, I say do. I say walk on the grass. It was meant to feel. I say sail. Tilt to the windmill. And if you fail, you fail. Everybody says don't. Everybody says don't. Everybody says don't. Don't get out of line. When they say that, then, lady, that's a sign. 
nine times out of ten, lady, you are doing just fine. I love that he gives us advice and courage. Yes. So, so I think it's an urban song because we're always feeling the pressure to conform, but we have to defy it. We have to yeah. protest. A lot of people have been protesting a lot of things lately, right? Right. And I right. really applaud that. So I can't protest every topic, but I can sing a song of protest to underline it so that we all remember that Sondheim, you know, gave us that permission in the city to protest. And I think a lot of people are, you know, so there's protest, there's persevering. You know, like something like Broadway Baby, like we all mm -hmm. feel, you know. Even at my age, you're still a Broadway baby, you know, pounding 42nd mm -hmm. Street. You know, I'm still going to be doing it forever. Yeah, maybe I was telling you, too, that we have Ziegfeld girls in the family. My, mm -hmm. my mother, yes. mother and her sister were performers, and the sister became a very prominent Ziegfeld girl. And she was in the original showboat in 1927. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's history. I That's mean, history. So I come from yeah. a family of showgirls, too. So... The idea that I can sing from Follies, but that Follies lived in my house is another example of that, the writing, you know, the two layers. So I chose a lot of music from Follies because I feel like Follies is really important to me. The life of the showgirl. Did you ever hear of a song, It Wasn't Meant to Happen? Oh, I love that song. Yeah. It's so good, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that it's Sent in the Clowns, but that's hard to sing. Oh, Okay. That's what I, if you, if you, when you <laughs> sing it, it lulls in the same way as Send in the Clowns. I feel like he wrote it before he wrote Send in the Clowns. This is a guess, but maybe I'm wrong. Was, it wasn't meant to happen a cut song from one of the musicals? It was a cut song. Mm -hmm. I feel there's a relation in his, in his ear, in his, in his sense, sensibility. Someone will know which came first, but. Yeah, um, someone. <laughs> but it is, it is a song about things that didn't work. It's the way it didn't work out. And it's sung from her to her to him saying, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. It didn't, it almost worked out. Still no regrets. No regrets. Just like in Send in the Clowns. No regrets. But right. onward, we have to We have to go on. It wasn't meant to happen. We'll be okay. Carry on. It's almost the same song. It lives in my body in the same way. And it's, of course, of course are both, they're both actresses. And I love that you, and Send in the Clowns was on the previous Sondheim album too. So I love yes. that there's sort of those parallels or the yeah. reverse parallel, I suppose it would be, but. Yeah. Well, I have a trilogy in my head and I, the third, oh. the third Sondheim album I want to make as I get a little older and maybe a little more plaintive would be um, an album called Consequences. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to have on it. I have, I've written a set list. It's downstairs somewhere, but I don't, I don't know exactly what it will be because this one is the fun record. Like this for me is the, the album that's all about sort of that quarter inch view, you know, sky, you know, in uh, what more do I need? Mm -hmm. You know, the sort of, the sort of sarcastic, but romantic fun. I think Sondheim loved Manhattan. There's an ecstasy for him. Yeah. I think he loved Manhattan and I wanted to. He really did. Right? Didn't he? Yeah. I think he really loved Manhattan. And I think as we de we defrost from the pandemic and we're, uh, you know, we, we recover from the freeze of the pandemic, I was thinking about Manhattan. And then I was thinking about it a lot. And he's an enduring poet for Manhattan. But in the description of the album you wrote, New York, it, it's about New York as it was, might still be, and will yet become. And mm -hmm. I think that is so beautiful. And you feel that through listening well, I to hope it. So. And I do think it's an album you have to listen to top to bottom. Like, I, I don't do think too. You shuffle it. I you do listen too. All the way through. Mm -hmm. I think that the actual, I think my the, the sequence is quite brilliant. Um, but it is a mosaic, but I wouldn't like it to be shattered like a mosaic, you know, and just sort of looked at like that. I, yeah. I do think that there is a, a story that rises to some kind of hope. I do finish with being alive. And I think of being alive, I have to think of being alive, not from from 
perspective of a young man like you guys, but from my age, what would being alive be like if my life were overlapped to Sondheim's and to these thoughts and themes of New York? And I want to stay alive, right? I want to stay pertinent and I want to stay connected and I want friends, you, my colleagues, my family to care for me, to keep me lit inside, to keep that candlelight, you know? Beautiful. Yeah. It's a deeply emotional song still, you know, for, for me, even though it's not about committing for the first time, which it is for Bobby. Right. He's looking for the first commitment. I'm looking for a sort of other redemption, you know? And I love the arrangement of it. I think that evokes that in the arrangement too. I hope so. You know, look, it's very much a Rob Mathis record because it really is like a big pop record. But that, but Rob Mathis is also an incredible human being. It's funky. He works for Sting. You know, he works in, for Elvis Costello. He, you know, he works in pop. So, you know, there were times where I thought, really, a click track? Okay. You know, like me on a click? You know, I was like, never in my life would I think of myself as a click singer. We did a few as a click track, you okay. know. But so my sort of poetic vision and actressiness and his pop, funky, he loves colors and open tune guitars and then Freddie Green kind of style, jazz and, and swing, which we did, What More Do I Need? So sometimes we have this yeah. uh, kind of 20s, 30s pastiche, which Sondheim also did a lot of. And then we sort of have this 70s sound, which would be more Take Me to the World, uh, Good Thing Going. Take Me to the World was my fave. Take Me to the World. I don't, I'm trying to figure out which, which I think we have two singles. I think it's like Good Thing Going and Take Me to the World. Great choices. Right? Oh, yeah. I think oh, they're yeah. cool. They're both good. Yeah, so Rob Mathis himself also has a sound. And you know what? I'm at that age where like I have co- I have colleagues, I have people I work with, and you got to let them run too. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. I let Ted play the piano the way he wants to play. Oh, yeah. And we're a family. And if you like it, you know, you're not just getting Melissa. You're getting Melissa's clan, you know, my circus, <laughs> you know. We've been friends like 20-something years, and I want to create these circuses, and I want the circus to, you know, to widen and bright and stay bright. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I went to the French circus actually for Christmas. It's called the Cirque de Livet. Oh, fun. It's like incredible. Napoleon himself built the building in France. You should go. <laughs> I think it's called Bourgogne or something. It's a, it's a very famous circus. It's a, the winter circus. It's the most incredible winter circus to, to be in France, you know, for Christmas. It was incredible. But I thought when I was watching the circus, like, I love, I love this community, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be in the circus, you know, I don't <laughs> want to be on a horse or something yeah. <laughs> spinning around when I could be, you know, in a great musical. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, of course. <laughs> anyway, so these are ideas. Will your circus be a part of your residency? You're going to have the gang there? Oh, that's right. I do have a residency, which I, it is going to feel like a circus. In fact, it's growing <laughs> into a circus. I hope people will come because Birdland from the mm-hmm. 14th to the 18th, two shows a night, we're going to have so many rotating visitors as well. Some of the greatest sort of trumpet players in the world who are playing upstairs are going to come downstairs. Then this woman from Paris is going to come around and she can sing happy days anytime I want, or I love Paris. So we can go a little bit like we can have a little, because we're looking at Manhattan, we can have her come in and represent (laughs) Paris just for a minute. We can make that thematic or make that work. But yes, but my residencies, I'm going to be so dizzy by the third or fourth day doing two shows a day with guests. And people should come because they should see how drunk we get. Uh, (laughs) Not actually drunk, but we get so drunk on collaborations and friends coming in. And Liz Dutton, who's a violinist in the Philharmonic, she's texted me today, I want to play. Oh, cool. She's like, I can play on the 18th. 
I can come at the 18th because she's in Sweeney Todd. <laughs> oh, and she's fun. got a matinee. And she's like, I can come right after the matinee. I want to be in the show. So like we may end up with like this beautiful woman just like coming up on stage, you know. <laughs> So you never know what you're going to get. I think people need to get their tickets. So anyway, so thank you for asking about the album. Of course. Are you going to do the album top to bottom or are you switching it up? Going to do some surprises? Yeah, I'm going to sing it in order, especially on the 16th and the 17th. We've Concord Records has asked me to have a very designated release day, which is where you can actually have the physical copy, the 16th and the 17th. And then some of the, the 14th and 15th, I think I'm going to pepper in other some other New York songs. So I, you'll have a, just, I think it'll be more like 70, 30 song time because you need a lot of tourists and things who come into oh, sure. Birdland. So I think I'll do a Georgia Stitt song. I think I'll do, um, cause she wrote some great New York songs, one called wanting of you. I'm not familiar, but you, uh, you probably knew Jason Robert Brown then. Yes, I French did. Woods. In fact, he played Che. He played Che and I was oh in <laughs> when we were like 14 and David Stone was, Barnum and I was Charity Love. Barnum. Oh my goodness! And um, yeah, I, Jason Robert Brown was as talented then as he is now. He he was lit from within. He was absolutely crazy to be in this business. Everybody there was, and so some of them, you know, aren't doing it. But mm-hmm. those of us who are will never forget. It was like being in Pippin. We were <laughs> walking around in the grass, juggling. People had striped leg warmers unitards and things or leg warmers up to their hips and nobody was wearing pants you know just a leotard and uh i have pictures of me sort of just just doing like an arabesque on a weird pipe or something that was coming up from the ground like this is weird pipe there's just a random pipe and i'm just balancing on it we would everything was turned into a a balance or a show or climb on a tree there were very few uh, cabins it was the woods it's now there's Hmm. it's french woods is like a is like a city you know, there's oh, all bunks yeah. everywhere and it's a big business. It wasn't before. We were all just these crazy children in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> learning, you know, to sing in Spanish, you know, learning in Vita and learning 1776. I mean, oh just musical after musical. We worked so hard. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't get my like fairy thing just by me. It's It was the 80s, you know. Mm-hmm. Musical theater used to be a, a place that didn't exist online. Right. <laughs> you know, we have this idea, you know, of, of a business now. And it wasn't even a business. We didn't. I was talking to Bernie Telsey, the great casting director. He said, Melissa, when you were coming up, you would do it. Everybody was a, for passion. You know, like people really, there is a whole part of the world now where people know they can hit it mm-hmm. and really make a, and make big money. There's big money. It wasn't like that when you started. So I think I get associated a little bit to a kind of more genteel time or mm-hmm. uh, kind of time where dreamers just wandered in you know roger reese was my acting teacher and austin bendleton and oh my gosh all the great uh, rosemary harris and and uh marion seldes you know would take me out to lunch you know I was young i said to her i want to be an actress what do i do and i was so young and she said live mm. oh live. wow live so it was all about like who who do you love and like you know mm-hmm. good lovers and it just you no know, I lived in the West Village I know it just seemed like a life to be an actress a New York actress mm-hmm. not a business it sounds like a dreamscape honestly like it and that's why I think the album captures when you mention that it, I can see it all I can picture it it's like an endless night or a like what's that mm-hmm. one uh, what's that one Robert De Niro movie where he, it's like New York and he's walking around all night and. I don't even know what it is anymore, but I don't, I don't know, know. But there's a movie, like a, a period movie that I've been thinking about when I think about this record. And it was called An Unmarried Woman. And it was uh, Jill Clayberg was in it. 
And I think of this, if this movie, this Sondheim album I've made were a movie in my head, it would be called, instead of an unmarried woman, it would just be a Sondheim woman. (laughs) And we have, we have a poster that's, that's on my website that sort of has, it looks like a movie poster Mm -hmm. and it says, you know, she, she walks downtown, she lives this, she's, she's sorry, she's grateful, she, she, she can foxtrot, yeah. you know, that's kind of thing. And <laughs> oh, she, and she is a Sondheim woman. Yes. You know? So I think there's a kind of character that, that when I get to Birdland, I'm going to have her down, you know, or by the end of the week, you know, it's just going to get crazier and crazier. Yeah. What's a Sondheim woman? You know, where does a Sondheim woman overlap with like sex in the city or I was going to say Carrie Bradshaw. It's a little too. Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to ask because I'm unrelated, but I know you've gotten you got to work with mm. the late great Sondheim throughout your career. Do you have like a little story or anything you would mind sharing about an encounter with him or a lesson he taught you that wasn't something that you heard in his music, but something he communicated directly to you? Oh well, teaching. He was always talking about teaching that it's the highest calling. You know, he doesn't say you don't like necessarily get that from his musicals. Teaching yeah. is the highest calling. He used to say, "Good grief, stop with the self-deprecation." Because I was hard on myself when I was younger. And he stopped with the self-deprecation. He would say, like, I'm the champ, he said. And I don't want competition, he said. So he doesn't like people to bring themselves down. And you would think that because he's slightly hard on himself, as we all know, he was a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. You can be a perfectionist without insulting yourself. So that's something that I retained. And also, he didn't always think that the higher the voice or the louder the, or the bigger the high note. You know, when I said to him when I'm singing Children Will Listen, there's some singers who go, children will listen, and they go up, mm-hmm. as opposed to children will listen, which is how it's written. And he always said, please, just sing it as it's written, or whatever you're comfortable with. You may have noticed that in some a lot of his musicals, it's not always like the greatest singer, per se, that gets cast. It's something right. else. So he continued that with me. You know, he would say to, to just take the road of least resistance. You know, mm-hmm. so he take the pressure off seeing that I was more of a vocalist or putting pressure on myself to be more of a vocalist. He also made an interesting remark to me, which is that I was an actress. He said, you, you're two things, it seems. You're an actress and a girl singer. A girl singer in the same, in the sort of vein of, you know, like a Rosemary Clooney or something, you oh, know, right. like that I like yeah. to sing in the cabaret way. And so he gave me advice on how to be an actress and a girl singer, that, that I have two interests. And he didn't, he didn't put down cabaret or jazzing his records, his, his songs. So what he advised me was to make sure to always sing the song he wrote in the beginning, in the first, the first half, then let the band do what they got to do and then do whatever. He just wanted to make sure that the song was heard, but, but he encouraged this, this idea of being a girl singer. He even told me to do a Surrey with a fringe on top as a ballad. He said, try weird things like that little reversals so that, you know, things get sexy that aren't normally sexy. And Hmm. he um, loved the reversals. He liked reversals, but he also understood girl singers, you know? So I thought that was an interesting (laughs) idea that he recognized that I wanted to live outside or see if I could live outside of a play Yeah, as a musical theater singer, but with a sensibility, like that's a little jazzy, you know? So I'm sort of playing, I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting with that, you know? Oh, for sure. I wouldn't, I mean, I'm very much experimenting with that. Like I was opening for George Benson this year. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Can't get jazzier. Yeah, I did it at the Montreal Jazz Festival. It's incredible. Wow. 
I know it was wild. It was wild to be from our background and then in, put in an arena with the funkiest, jazziest band you've ever heard in your life. A drummer with, you know, plastic wrapped, you know, like a big plastic wall. It was that big of a drum. It was like so funky. And he's like, can I make this funky? And I said, like, you make it funky. You can make it very funky. Yeah. I said, you do what you do and I'll do what I do. And we'll see how this goes. And the guys were so funky. And I was singing Harold Arlen and I sang Luck Be a Lady. Michelle Legrand, a whole lot of Michelle Legrand. I had to do a whole bilingual program because it was in Montreal. Okay. You know, I met Michelle Legrand on Broadway doing um, Amour with Norm Lewis oh. and Malcolm Getz and so many great Broadway people were in that. And that was your Tony nomination. It was. It was. <laughs> I think I got the Tony nomination because I did a really good can-can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did one of those things where you do cartwheel, 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 and then you just just fly into a kick and fly into a split with no hands your gymnast skills came in handy exactly (laughs) thank you oh you're so clever you know i i I made an album with him and i i toured with him so he was also a person who loved jazz you know he'd work with sarah vaughn and barbara streisand of course and and johnny mathis and so many great jazz artists have covered his, his his work bill evans and so on so I love seeing where the two worlds can can intersect, but I'm never going to lose the idea that each song tells a story. I hope not. You know, I hope not. But we really let it loose with this album. And this album's pretty pretty um, careening. You know, it careens all over the place. Jazz and funk. We have uh, Louis Nash, one of the great American jazz drummers in the world, who's just absolutely brilliant and thrilling. And Rob Mathis said, we got to get somebody epic, somebody like, like somebody who's like Louis Nash, you know? And then he was like, maybe we should just call Louis Nash and just see if he'll do it. And we were like, what? Oh, wow. And Louis Nash came into New York City. You know, he's an epic genius. And he doesn't know Sondheim. <laughs> but he gave us four really inspired days of rehearsal and three recording sessions. Wow. So, so anyways, a lot of love on this album. So thank you for yeah, asking about it. I'm so excited. And, I'm so uh, excited for everyone to hear it and people to yeah. then go see you do it live, which I mean, 10 sh- is it 10 shows or 10 yeah. shows, 10 shows. So if you think Valentine's Day, just think Melissa. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Love it. Let's go. It- Valentine's Day, Melissa. Let's go. Love to New York too, at the same time. It's a yeah. love letter to New York. It's mm-hmm. a tribute to Sondheim. It's like I said, a palimpsest of my life. It's it's my life and this idea of a Sondheim woman mm-hmm. uh, kind of all happening at the same time. So it'll keep me busy and interested for a really long time. The same way Sondheim Sublime did. That's Mm -hmm. such a good record in a way because it was all about what we leave behind. You know, the ideas behind Sondheim Sublime was was the core idea that Sondheim says, we disappear, we die, but we don't. Or careful the tale you tell, that is the spell. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of what we leave behind when we depart this world, children Mm -hmm. and art, as she says. So those are the, those are the enduring ideas. You're making ideas. me your tear up here. Oh, stop. Those are the enduring <laughs> ideas of, you know, for me of, of, of that softer side of Sondheim, the sublime side. And then this one, like I said, it's really the, the power of New York City and the potential of New York and maybe the way in which we're never all going to get what we want here. We got to be okay with that because mm. another hundred people are coming. Yes. Gosh, you're, you know? you're wow. very profound, Melissa. You, oh. you, you, seriously, the I'm going to be a philosophy teacher on the side. You should be. <laughs> no, I'm an old mom now. So maybe, you know, maybe you young folks need some views, you know, just some views, mm-hmm. just some views. I'm not like smarter than anybody, but just I have views, you know, and I really, I think I am pretty upbeat. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yes. I am really upbeat about 
about life, but we have to learn not to be perfectionists, mm -hmm. you know, and to experience all the complexity of life and not be afraid of it. You know, so many people are afraid of things these days, I think, anxiety and depression. Yeah. Maybe if we just sort of expect things to be a little crazier and develop flexibility as a quality, you know, you'll have more fun. I need to apply that to my own life. You absolutely, did? absolutely. Survival. And have a lot of sex. Try to have some sex. At least. <laughs> yes. Love for sure. Yes. Love, sex, and survival. That's the <laughs> subtitle of my of my <laughs> my my memoir. I loved how you were talking earlier. You're like lived in the West Village. I took on lovers. You know, that I was did, so I dreamy. I loved it. I, I loved know. it. I had some serious lovers that were so theatrical too. I can't I can't even tell you who these people are. It wouldn't be right. <laughs> um, Save it for the memoir. A terminal ingenue. Love, sex, and what was love, the other sex, thing? and survival. <laughs> Yeah. And survival. There it is. There's your book. I did date for a little minute. Greg Mosier, you know, he's a director and he's a wonderful person. But I'll never forget it was so West Village because I went into his West Village apartment and there was a huge plow in the middle. He had done Speed the Plow with Madonna. And the plow was in his apartment. It was so sexy. I was like, oh, I love this, you know. Did he have any Madonna stories? Did he have Madonna? Oh, yeah. He's so brilliant. He's so brilliant. I actually can't wait to see him again. I'm really, wait, I see him from time to time, and I'm always like, have coffee, got coffee. I think it's good to stay, to stay nice, you know, with the folks you've loved or, or mm -hmm. had a little something about. Yeah. Um, but I never forget walking into his beautiful loft, and there was a, just dominated by <laughs> David Mamet's plow. That's really so good, iconic. right? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. So good. It reminds me of another time I was in LA and I had done a movie with Steve Herrick. I'd been in an Angelina Jolie film called Life or something like it. And I went back to Steve's house and opened the door in Hollywood and all the Dalmatians answered the door. He had he had done all the Dalmatian movies and they gave him all the dogs. So it's just so weird. This oh, is like so such Hollywood. isn't it so Hollywood. They were all and they were all a little old, you know. They were like thirty, yeah. like kind of oldish Dalmatians. God, they all stayed together. <laughs> so cute, at least, but you know? kind of oh sad. Cute. He was such a sweet man. Yeah. Before we wrap, we do end on a dose of drama. This is something on your mind. Could be something you want to rant about, rave about, promote. Something you're doing later. Been thinking about. And I. I do have another question for you, Melissa. My dose of drama is we only had one final Sondheim musical to ever debut, Here We Are, happened, oh, ha is happening. Yes. Did yeah. you have a chance to go? I sure did. Yeah. I went to opening night. To opening night. Yes. The guest, if you will, this is so braggy, but of Jeff, of Sondheim's husband. Oh, there you go. There it is. Oh my God. It was amazing. He texted me that day. Do you want to come to the opening night? I was like, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. I went like to heaven, you know. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. And here we are, guys, right? And here everyone is who's listening. We're all here right now, right? 100%. 100%. It kind of brings me to in what is on my mind. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I've already promoted my album. I hope everybody will enjoy it and, and come to Birdland and see me hopefully, you know, being the ringmaster of just a beautiful circus of joy. And I hope to be in, you know, I'm like really working on my voice because it's, it's, it's such a blissful thing to sing that record. It's hard. But what's on my mind right now is Aaron Lazar. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw him talking about his disease and I saw him talking about the diagnosis of ALS. Right. He's a very beloved character in our, in our generation and a very important talent. But I think he has a lot of interesting things he's trying to say to all of us. And he is going to, I'm sure, defeat this disease or slow it down mm -hmm. considerably with the power of his uh, commitment to healing and to meditation and 
But what he was saying on the um, Seth Rudetsky show the other day was that he feels that sometimes we in the theater can take a part or take a, make a move as it were to get something next to think like, where's this going to get me? And then I'll get that. And then I'll get this thing and then I'll be on the tour. But then when the tour is over, I'll do the thing. And then I'll do, and there's like this nervousness that sets in. And then you, somehow he felt like he got nervous over the last, you know, stretch of his career and he doesn't feel he was enjoying it. So I just feel like there's some, wisdom to what he's saying, you know, let him speak, you know, for himself. But what I was getting from him was a reminder to stay true to who we are. Don't let, you know, um, people discourage you from, you know, even, oh, sure, if I'm quirky, and I have some candles and so on, it's not a crime, for God's sakes, right? Right. I'm not going to apologize for that. I couldn't care more, work harder, or love this more. So that's my that's I got my colors, and you guys have your colors, and et cetera, everybody out there. But I think what Aaron was saying was that he was losing track of who he is and getting more and more nervous. Um, and maybe he's really not to blame for, for his illness, but he feels he contributed mm, to it mm. by tension. And I just feel like we should all learn from the generosity of his sharing the way he is right now and learn something about appreciating our gifts individually. And everybody deserves a spot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the biggest spot. I'm not getting everything, right? But I like what he's saying, and he's he's very much on my mind, and I hope that we all listen to what he has to say. Right yes, now. yes, he was who very, I was. Very he was well top said. of mind for me too, as well. He was what I was going to mention, and he's obviously oh, really? a friend of the show, and yeah. we love him, and hope to have him back to talk with us more. Oh, he was on this yes, show, he, yeah. Um, yes. Twenty. I got to go. Twenty twenty. It was a while listen. ago. So. It was during. It was during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and. Then I got to see him do a show with Kate Baldwin at Fifty Four Below, maybe, right. maybe two years ago, because they had d- they had done Bridges together. Bridges, exactly. Oh my gosh, their voices together, beyond ecstasy. <laughs> I, I I don't know that I'd seen Aaron live. I can't remember if I'd seen anything else, but I've started crushing on her too because we shared a dressing room this year <laughs> oh. when one of my good friends from college passed away, Peter Foley, who was a oh. wonderful musical theater composer, mm. and I shared a dressing room with her. And- she turned to me and she's like, I got you figured out now. You're real smarty pants. <laughs> that sounds like her. And she just like <laughs> fell in love with me. Yeah. Like there was this like she could see I had a heart of gold. She does too. So. And you two have that Sharon McLaughlin uh, crossover. Yes, exactly. Well. I, I, I have yet to invite her to do Glockamora as a, as a cool jazz duet, but I'm, I'm going to get on that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Ooh, I, I, I can hear it. I can see it. The gays need it. The gays need that duet. Yeah, that ginger and my like dark Italian, uh-huh. complicated. It's going to be beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Two Sharons <laughs> together. So um, she's a beautiful soul. But yeah, so all this is on my mind. I yeah. guess my community is on my mind. And and also my health, all of our health. Mm-hmm. Slow down enough, you know, slow down enough. Definitely. Wow, I yeah. needed to hear a lot of this today. You, you, so. It's like you are the answer to a lot of what's what's oh. going on. And and I think this album is going to touch a lot of people in many, many ways. They're going to buy it. They're going to go see you in concert. They're going to follow you. I know that you're the, you. the fairy mom. You're Melissa underscore yeah. Erica underscore fairy mom on Instagram. Fairy mom. I'm on, I'm on TikTok now. Uh-oh. doing things on TikTok. Yes. And um, yeah, and Concord Theatricals, you know, they're doing the, the Sondheim musical, uh, the last one. Here we are. Mm-hmm. But they did Into the Woods. So they're an amazing label. So it's called Sondheim in the City. And um hope they enjoy this. Yeah. And oh, yes. be another one. It's my life's work, though, is to learn from Sondheim. Mm-hmm. To learn both to share it, to keep it, to keep it fresh and also classic mm-hmm. respectful i'm very respectful of it absolutely 
Well, thank you so much oh, for this you. your time, thank Melissa. You. This has been a treat. All right. Well, so as a lovely. twins mom, I think someone did something right. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pass that along. And I'll go back to my twins, but it was lovely spending time yes. with you both. Thank oh, it you. means a lot. And of course, everyone's following you. They should follow us at the Drama Podcast. Connor's at Connor McDowell. I'm at Dylan McDowell. We're going to have all the links to all of your stuff below, Melissa. And thank you. Yeah, of course. And Connor, I will see you next time. Oh, drama. drama. Bye.